Today I'm joined by Ed Fang from The Power Rank. Ed, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Ed Feng from the Power Rank. Ed, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Jake. So Ed, I've been a fan of yours for a while now and, and from a college football perspective, there's there's no one better. So do you want to take us through how a PhD from Stanford gets into sports analytics? Yeah, I appreciate the kind words. Um, for sure. I mean, I was uh, a PhD and I was looking to be a professor and uh, got some interesting quantitative skills. I studied something called statistical physics, which is basically trying to understand how you can explain bulk matter using the fact that matter is made up of atoms and atoms jiggle. And it's interesting because uh, football teams jiggle too. Uh, and anyone who's watched football will, will tell you that they don't perform the same way um, every game. And so that background in, in statistical physics really helped me kind of get into sports. Um, first, I had to completely crash and burn in my academic career. Made a lot of enemies of the wrong people, you know, people who had to uh, write letters to get me my next job. And so I was definitely on my way out. I was a kind of a stubborn young kid, and I was looking to do something else. I started reading about Google and what they were doing with the PageRank algorithm. I guess we're in 2018 right now. So, so back in 1999, uh, the world of of web search was a mess. I mean, you would go to these Alta Vista search engines and, and you would type in something and you would get complete gibberish. And then Google came along and they organized the web essentially. And they did it with something called PageRank where they used the, the link structure of the web to organize it. So the basic idea was like you were an important website if you were getting like an incoming link from another important website. And so I started reading about this, and this is about 2008, and I was like, hey, you know, this PageRank thing is the same thing, uh, it's the same math that I was doing in my research. So I essentially got interested in how you could apply those same ideas for PageRank into ranking sports teams. And uh, the idea is that, you know, you, um, you know, similar to, you know, what Google was doing, that if you got an incoming link from, from another website, that meant you were an important website. And in sports, it means, like, if you beat a good team, you get credit for that. Or even if you stay close to a good team, um, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a bottom dwelling ar- team like uh, Arkansas in the SEC and you go to Alabama and you don't necessarily win, but you stay in the game, my analytics give you credit for that. And uh, it's the whole using margin of victory um, instead of just wins and losses. And, and that's really the key to making accurate predictions. So it was about 2008, developed this algorithm, first started with the NFL, um, and what it does is it produces rankings for all 32 teams, and you can get predictions. You can you can get predictions as well from these from the ratings. Um, the ratings are just uh, an expected margin of victory, 
um, against an average team. And if you just subtract the ratings, you get a, a prediction. So I started, started sending out these NFL rankings to uh, some friends, and they thought it was interesting and encouraged me to do more. And 10 years later, here I am. So what was the trajectory like for a Stanford PhD getting into sports analytics back in you know, the mid-2000s? Was there a plethora of people looking at this field and wanting to get involved, or were you sort of an outlier when it came to jumping over to sports analytics? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I was a little bit in the second wave. Um, so kind of in the early 2000s when I was in grad school, you know, people like Aaron Schatz at Football Outsiders and then Brian Burke was doing his own thing over at Advanced NFL Stats. And so they were the, kind of the first people into football. And, you know, I mean, I kind of always been a, a, a sports fan, but never really thought about working on it, working in it. Um, you know, I wanted to be a professor and, you know, that was kind of the, the guiding light in my life. So I, I, I guess I felt like I had to kind of contribute something original, which I don't really recommend if you're trying to get in the field. Like if you want to work in sports, just just do it. Just get in and do something. I kind of waited around to have some original idea. And I, and I did contribute. You know, I, I feel like the, the ranking algorithm that I have is, is pretty unique and, and does a really good job of adjusting for strength of schedule. But I guess I was a little bit late to the game in, in, in some sense. I mean early in – I mean a lot has changed in 10 years. I think back then – I mean, markets are always getting better, and um, I've seen that uh, as as I've developed uh, my ranking. So, you know, for example, back in 2008, like, I was just looking at the final scores in games. And I was only doing that because uh, – well, I was doing that because that was easy data to get. Um, you just scrape the final scores, and, and then I would apply my algorithm to essentially adjust for strength of schedule. You can't do that today and be anywhere close to where these market values are. Um, you have to do a lot more work, and it's been interesting to watch that evolve over 10 years, and it will continue to evolve. So when you say people should just get into it, how much of your sort of education studies you know, experience from that perspective is relevant now in what you're doing? Is it something that you can yeah. learn on the fly, or do you have to have some sort of uh, educational aspect that's relevant? Um, I mean, I think you do need a quantitative background and, you know, certainly the algorithm that I was just telling you about that has definitely helped me stand out and it's certainly given me a good story about how I got into the field. But the truth of the matter is like least squares gives is a pretty good ranking algorithm. Uh, this is something I actually want to write about more, but, but least squares, uh, least squares is kind of the guiding idea behind regression. And when we talk to regression of the mean, you're, you're essentially doing it a best fit line based on least squares, and you can use that same idea to rank teams. And that's a pretty good algorithm. The math is pretty solid. Um, so, so when I say like you know you don't you don't need to be perfect to do what you love. Uh, that's kind of what I mean. You know, I could have kind of jumped in with the least squares algorithm. This is what Ken Pomeroy is known in college basketball. Yeah, he still has a, a variant of a least squares algorithm that he uses for his rankings, uh, and his stuff is very good. Um, I haven't quite tested it. I would, I would guess that mine's slightly better, but uh, it's it's not worth waiting however many years for you to have a great idea to jump in the field. But with that said, too, you know, I mean, I I feel like my academic background did give me an advantage in in a lot of ways. I mean, a the algorithm, but b also like I had a great thesis advisor that taught me how to systematically think about things, and it's the same kind of thought process that I still use in approaching any problem. So if you can find, you know, and it's not necessarily about getting a PhD. I think it's about finding a good mentor, someone that you respect and uh, have similar values to that can really help you um, 
you know, clear a path through the noise of the world, I guess. Uh, that That's what's most important, I think. So one of the most, you know, common questions that I get, you know, through the emails is books, content, podcasts, anything like that. And I usually ask this at the end, what, you know, you look at, what you consume. But I, I guess I want to ask it now. What are your guiding principles when you come from a very strong educational background to getting into this field? Did you have a number of different books or a different... Uh, papers that you looked at what was the main sort of two or three or five things that sort of helped you push you all the way into sports analytics and then understanding what was required to be successful in this area yeah i mean i think you know i mean when i got into it uh clearly the the original page rank paper from google was was very important um you know a lot of equations academic type paper you know i remember reading basketball on paper uh it's a book by dean oliver and so, you know, you know, books like that were really helpful. But I think it's not necessarily about – I think, you know, if you're thinking about getting into a field, I think it's more about finding out problems that people are interested in. And I kind of stumbled into it. Like I was kind of like, oh, let me do something cool with the math I know. Let me rank some teams. And But really the application was betting. So people were interested in what I was doing because it, it gave them a, a – objective baseline to evaluate point spreads in the market and that's still what people use my stuff to do so i kind of backed into the problem which is not something i i really recommend you know if if you're kind of approaching sports or, or any kind of problem like you know go to a conference where the top people in, are meeting and go ask them what problem that you can go solve and help them solve so um i, I guess i did that a little bit later when i started thinking about march madness and the idea there wasn't necessarily how can I predict college football better. The question there is how can I win my pool? And so I started reading up on some of that stuff. And there were these interesting ideas about contrarian choices for, for picking a champion. So basically you can't do what everyone else is doing um, because you can't pick the champion, the same champion that everyone else is picking. Because if that champion wins, you all get – a boatload of points for picking the right champion, but you're still at the mercy of randomness. There's a lot of other people that could get really lucky in the earlier rounds and beat you. So you need to pick a contrarian champion, someone that has a good chance of winning, but that a not a lot of other people are picking. And so now you're not, you know, if if your contrarian champ wins, then you have a much better chance of of winning the pool. And this is not an idea that I came up with. Uh, this is something I read. I think Dr. Bob was doing some interesting writing on this. But for that, I just ended up, you know, I ended up doing the math behind it. I ended up showing very clearly how, you know, these contrarian strategies uh, work with different type of pool sizes. So, yeah, I mean, I think everything should really be problem driven. And I try to be more problem driven now. Uh, and that's how I hope to go forward. So take us through your process, and I, I know I, I've certainly listened to a lot of your podcasts, and I've read a lot of stuff you've put out there. Your preseason rankings. Let's start there. Let's let's talk sure. about how you sort of approach that. Do you focus largely on priors? And let's take college football for example. What goes into mm -hmm. your uh, modeling when it comes to preseason rankings for college football? Yeah. So I developed uh, just a simple linear regression model on on a multitude of variables. To, to predict the college football preseason. And the nice thing about college football is that teams tend to persist from year to year. So Alabama, Ohio State, they have resources and uh, tradition that you know programs like Rice, where I went to school, will never have. 
So, you know, you expect Alabama and Ohio State to be near the top every year. And so you can kind of use a regression model to, you know, take things like your past history, how a team has performed over the past four years, and then some other minor factors like turnovers and returning starters. And I put that into a regression model and it spits out an answer at me and it looks reasonable. And the model predicts about, you know, 70% of game winners straight up, which, which is pretty good, which is decent for, for a preseason model. Um, so I developed that, I don't know, I mean, maybe five, six years ago. And um, I got a really interesting email just the other day. Uh, it said, uh, you are a fraud. A couple years ago, <laughs> you changed your prediction on Michigan because you thought they were better than your model said. And then I, lear- and then I learned that you were a Michigan fan. So you're a fraud and I'm not following you anymore. And as harsh as that was, like, you know, I guess he kind of had a point, right? Like, so so no analytics are ever perfect. And so no predictor in, in general is ever perfect. And you, I think as both a data scientist and as a better, you have to understand when your model is likely to be right and when it's rec- likely to be wrong. And so what I was trying to do with Michigan, and this was like, this was last year. So this is before the 2017 season. Michigan was like 28th in my preseason model. I was like, ah, that's too low, right? I mean, the markets, everyone had them way higher. So, I, I mean, I feel like this guy had a criticism. So, you know, you either you make an adjustment for a lot of teams, but, you know, I guess I made the mistake in making an adjustment for one team that I knew well, but but not more. But uh, I, I, I tell that story just to tell you this, that like the real solution to that is to come up with a better predictor right to improve your model and what i've done um this past preseason is i've as i started using a second preseason rankings and what i do there is i take market win totals and i back out what the rating for each team should be um so so basically i try to ask what is the rating that is consistent with the posted market win total in in college football and this you're getting a lot of, you know, good information from the markets and returning starters and, you know, the fact that Michigan had a transfer like Shea Patterson come in this year who has been terrific. And that also leads me to the whole idea, like one of the big things in my work right now is, is ensemble methods, which is just a fancy way of saying that I combine two different predictors together. And we know from the data science world that that leads to better, more strong predictions. And I guess had I done this, you know, this market-based prediction last year, it would have had Michigan way higher than 28th. And then I wouldn't have had to fudge it and had this guy, you know, say I'm a fraud. So so the answer really is to, to just, I guess, improve your model. And, you know, I think you did have a point. Yeah, but it's tough, though, because a lot of it is noise and narrative and, and ESPN and media, and it's hard to filter that out I, I wanted to ask you about that separately but i'll ask it now how do you feel about noise and narrative and trends and some of this stuff that may not be predictive do you think that's right. fully captured in the the line whether it's the the season win total whatever it might be and and some people who watch college football closely this year might talk a little bit a little bit about you know florida state and and how that sort of has played out but in terms of generally, do you think the noise and the narrative is captured in the market or do you think the market's smart enough to filter that out and you can rely on it? Because it sounds like if you're using a you know, a, a certain metric that involves the, the win totals and, and the market generally, you might be able to filter it out if it's included. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I think the markets are are very accurate, but there's always going to be a little bit of noise, um, just because no predictor is perfectly accurate. And I think you see that a lot in college football right now. It's really hard after two or three games to figure out exactly how a college football team has changed from your preseason expectations. And I mean, I think a great example is Purdue. So they lost their opening game against Northwestern. They lost at home to Eastern. Both of those were games where I think they had more yards or more yards per play or both than their opponent. Both were games where they got atrociously bad defensive penalties that essentially lost them the game or did not give them an opportunity to win the game. You know, I think the markets are overreacting on Purdue. Uh, You see the losses. You see the fact that even Eastern Michigan was in a game. And, um, you know, uh, they, they played Missouri, and I think my numbers had Purdue as a small favorite. And and then the markets were uh, – I think they started with Missouri as a seven-point favorite on the road. It got down to five and a half. But it's really hard to make a line for that game. Um, I think the line should have been a little bit smaller than five and a half, but I don't think my model had it right as Purdue was the winner of that game either. So I think – you know, nothing's going to be perfect in filtering the noise. Um, you just want to, you know, as a better, you want to find all the information that you can to help you, you know, pick the right side of things, I guess. And it's, you know, it'll be a lot easier after week eight in college football, but it's it's really hard right now. And so I think there is a real opportunity when you can kind of use numbers, but you can also use your knowledge about these teams to do your best at filtering through the noise. Depending on how you treat week zero, we're at week four of sort of college football season, week three of NFL. The the hottest thing I think now is probably strength of schedule and understanding, you know, what teams have played other teams and how good they might be. And people talk about Louisville and college football, whether or not they're a good team. And most people say no. And uh, I think I've heard you talk about Virginia Tech, for example. Mm. What's the best way in your mind to sort of evaluate strength of schedule now and we've only had a very very small sample size sample size and it's very hard to know if these teams have had a a, you know alabama for example they're just running over everyone have they you know necessarily had good opponents or have they just got uh you know easy wins so far how do you go about it early in the season with small sample size to figure out if a team's likely going to be good three four five weeks later and in terms of betting if you want to take them on or you want to sort of be on their side yeah, I mean, I, I take, um, again, the ensemble approach, and, and after week three is the first time in college football where I can say, all right, I'm going to evaluate all college football teams on a couple different metrics. So one is just the margin of victory in games, which I talked about earlier, uh, another is yards per play, and a third is the markets, so the closing point spreads in the markets. And the idea is if you combine enough of them together, um, you're, you're hopefully going to get something accurate. Now, that's still not probably not the case because Virginia Tech – only played two two games, um, beat Florida State in the opener by a pretty hefty margin, but actually had um, fewer yards per play than Florida State in that game. So when you put that all together, I mean, I think I have their offense and defense in the 120s in college football based on three weeks of the season. So that's almost certainly wrong. And the question is, you know, just how much better are they? And, and these things figure themselves out by week five, week six, um, but when you're sitting here at week four, it's really, you know, from my job as a data scientist is to figure out how to weight what we've seen this season with our preseason expectation. And it's not going to shock you to to know that, you know, preseason, it still has the majority of the weight at this point in the season. Um, so 
this season's uh, data will take over as we go through the season and certainly be the majority, way more than the majority by the end of the season. Um, but the kind of strange thing in, in football, it's, it's really a small sample size. I mean, we get 12 games with college football, 16 games with NFL. Um, I keep my preseason weight in there the entire season. And we know that that leads to better predictions. And, and that's part of the reason why I spent so much time working on these preseason predictions. It's such a small sample size during the season that, that we keep that around. We keep the preseason expectation around. So how much can you downgrade a team based on one or two performances? Because some people might have watched the old Miss game and thought right. they were up seven, so they you know were in the game for a little bit, so they're kind of okay. Or others would say they were awful. And you think about the NFL, the Bills at the moment – um, there's a few teams like the Kansas City Chiefs that are on the upside. How do you go about sort of tempering expectations when it comes to outlier performances or even one, two, or three sort of outlier performances? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard. I mean, it's one of these things where it helps to use the numbers. It helps to watch games. Um, it helps to have inside information on teams. Uh, but to just give you an example, uh, I mean, I'm looking at Going into week three in the NFL compared to what my preseason expectations were. So I have Tampa Bay about 4.7 points better on a neutral site than I did during the preseason. So clearly Ryan Fitzpatrick has been fantastic. We all kind of know in our heart of hearts that he's not that good. I mean, we've seen enough of him that that we know that he's going to regress to to what his true skill level is. Um, on the other side of things, I have Arizona about 4.3 points worse uh, than we thought they were in the preseason. And I think they have a lot of issues with their new coaching staff. Um, I had a guest on, Josh Hernsmeyer, who's a really good DFS follow, doing some excellent work. Uh, he said, uh, you know, not based on numbers, but he said he watched Arizona the first week and thought the coaching staff had no idea what they were doing. And they went out and scored zero points against the Rams the second week. So, um, I guess that gives you an idea. Those are the outliers in my NFL stuff after two weeks. Um, I mean, I still, you know, now that I'm looking at this, like, that seems like a lot of points to, to change a team after a two weeks. Well, even plus seven, 16 or 17, whatever it is this week against the Vikings, I think it's the Bills, and then you've got yeah. Arizona five or six-point well, dogs at home. Yeah, I mean, Buffalo is bad. I mean, they, they just don't have a quarterback that I think can even – be thought of as replacement level. I mean, I think Josh Allen is terrible. We're going to see that. Um, so anyways, yeah, I mean, I do think four points is a, is a big change. And, um, but I, I, I will also say that like, you know, more than two out of three teams are within one point of their preseason expectation. And I think that's about right as well. Rethink the way you say sport. Every action or play can be represented by a series of numbers. When you analyze this data, patterns begin to emerge. If you follow these patterns and develop systems, you can play the game within the game. Betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So what frustrates you the most in this space when you, I'm sure you go on Twitter and you go online and you see a lot of people doing a lot of different things, whether it is DFS and, and fantasy or sports betting. What's some of the things in the, the data analytics world and the data, you know, being a data scientist that, that frustrates you when you're looking at this sort of space? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think most of the data scientists that that work in the field are pretty good, and and I enjoy following their stuff. And you know, I mean, I I don't agree with everything that everyone does, but uh, I think you know we've come a long way in the last ten, fifteen years. Probably the more frustrating thing is the the betting and the tout world. You know, people that are willing to say, oh, you know, I went nine and two my last week. You know, buy my stuff and and spend you know a thousand dollars for the season. Uh, that tends to be just frustrating, just because uh, one of my big stories is don't don't believe a small sample size, right? I mean, it's it's really hard to evaluate a team or a tout or better over ten games. So, um, but the problem with touts is that they wouldn't tout their stuff unless people were buying them. So it's almost like we have this market problem. Where you know people want picks, right? I mean, people have jobs; they don't have all day time. They don't have time to spend all day handicapping, and so they kind of want the answer. And I get that. Um, you know, my business is a little different. Like I, I, I sell you the analytics, and I, you know, I'm trying to find. I, 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 I found an audience that that appreciates that stuff, um, but I think more people just kind of want the answer. And so that's a little bit frustrating. I mean, it's obviously nothing I can do to change people's human nature, um, but I would probably put that at number one. Yeah, it is a it's a fascinating area. I grew up in Australia for the first twenty five years of my life, so coming to the U.S. for the last sort of five or six and seeing how the tout world works, it's it's really really interesting and fascinating and scary and all those sorts of things. So yeah. It's probably another hour, another day we can get into, but I want <laughs> yeah. to ask you about sort of where analytics is heading, and it's sort of evolved a lot. Most people have probably read or watched the, the Moneyball stuff, and they've seen how it's gone in baseball and all the different sort of analytics there. In terms of college football, for example, I've heard a lot of people talk about you know ex- uh, explosive plays, success rate, some of these new metrics that aren't necessarily mainstream yet, but are sort of developing in the the football world. What are some of the things that you keep an eye on that you sort of monitor and may use in some of your stuff that you can sort of tell us about that are emerging? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit you hit my 2018 goal right on the head, success rate. Uh, my friend Bill Connolly over at SB Nation does excellent work. And one of the things he came up with last year was he showed that success rate tends to persist from early to late season. Um, but if you only take the successful plays and look at the explosiveness behind those plays, uh, you get a lot of regression to the mean in explosive plays. So, so basically what that means is that randomness plays a big, big role in explosive plays. Uh, it still helps to be Alabama and Ohio State and have the athletes that can make those big plays. But just like in turnovers, like I think most fans uh, underestimate the role of randomness in big plays. So what does that mean for me? You know, I've been using yards per play as a primary metric in, in college football, and it, it's it's a good thing to do. Uh, my schedule, my adjustments for schedule um, are really important in college football. But I think what Bill's work shows is that I need to also be looking at success rate and adjusting it for opponent. And that is something that I'm working on for my for the site uh, this fall, 2018, that's kind of the big goal is to get that working. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, success rate, number one. And and then the other thing I've been thinking about this week is, is that we really haven't had, um, at least not that I know of, uh, like just trying some of the standard machine learning stuff out there that, that people are doing for every problem in the world and, and just applying it to, to football and, and sports problems. Um, 
I think there's problems with those methods. Uh, I, I tend to be a little bit suspicious about a method that you can't explain what the answer is. So, you know, if you had, for example, like a decision tree just telling you to pick, uh, let's say, just take uh, Purdue side this week. If you can't really figure out why the algorithm told you to do that, I kind of have a problem with it. Um, but it's also been a while since I've really thought about machine learning and, and what people are doing in that space. And so uh, it's one of those things where, you know, over the next two, three years, I'd like to learn a little bit about that just because I think it's interesting. And, and obviously the whole AI and what people are saying about that is is an ever-increasing part of our world with self-driving cars and stuff like that. And I think, um, you know, on the longer time horizon, I'd like to figure out what exactly that means for football, whether these questions that I have about, you know, can you get any insight, football insight out of the algorithms? Is that actually true? Or have people developed better stuff? Um, my guess is that they haven't, but but something I want to explore over the next couple of years. So do you think that's coming to, to football and college football or NFL? And that'll be something that a lot of people will be looking into. They'll have their own ML and AI stuff that they're working on that they'll apply to legitimate sort of sports betting use cases or even just rankings. Yeah, I think so. And I would bet that there are betting syndicates out there that are already doing it. Um, I don't really know any of kind of the, you know, football analytics guys that are they're doing it. Um, may, I mean, maybe they are. I, maybe I'm just not aware. But, um, but yeah, I definitely think people are going to start doing it. Uh, hopefully I will be at the forefront of it. So people that aren't, you know, at your level and haven't done this for a long time now and, and didn't start out at the the Google page rank and have gone from there to, to the powerrank.com and, and so on. How tip of the sword do you need to be to be successful? Do you need to be, you know, right at the, the very pointy end to be able to, to sort of advance in this space? Or can you be pretty damn solid and add in some sort of good bankroll management and a few other things to be pretty successful in this space in your opinion? Yeah, I, I I absolutely do not think you need a PhD to get into sports analytics. And in fact, it might be a hindrance. <laughs> Um, I think if you want to get into it, yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a nose for good questions. And, um, if you want to do, if you want to bet, if you want to get into sports analytics, like show up in Boston for the Sloan sports analytics conference every year and talk to people and see what problems they're working on and, and go solve them. And I, I think that you, you know, you don't necessarily need you don't need a PhD to do that. I mean, some of the machine learning stuff I think is interesting, but a lot of that is also at the point where if you have some kind of knowledge of software, you can use other packages to kind of play around with this stuff. You don't need to rewrite, you know, a decision tree or whatever neural network is the the flavor of the year. Uh, deep learning, I think that's yeah, whatever the flavor yep, of the yep. AI. Of, of I mean, it's all it's probably just a neural net or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, I think if you I mean, you know, if you want to get into this, you're going to probably need to learn how to code a little bit. I, I definitely highly recommend that. I definitely highly recommend uh, finding an interesting problem to work on that that someone else cares about the answer. Um, and, you know, you want to know how to run a regression um, because that's always going to pop up. But. You know, spending five, six, eight, ten years on a PhD, probably not the the you know the first thing I would do. So I'm curious what you think about focusing in on a certain conference, sport, league, whatever it might be. Do you think you need to 
sort of start with the Big Ten, for example, and, and really go deep into what those teams are doing and then sort of expand from there? Or do you think you can be relatively successful if you're focusing more broadly? I, you know, I think that kind of depends on the data set. Um, a lot of I, – I still think there's a lot of good stuff to do with just football play-by-play data. And this is something that's been kind of hard to get. It's, it's getting easier in the NFL um, because a lot of people are using this NFL scrape our package it's still tougher in college football you can buy it but it's super expensive um so i think you know i I think the question depends on the the data package right so if you want to do something in college football and you can get the play-by-play data and you want to you know for example ask something about success rate and so can you compare running backs and their success rate and adjust for strength of schedule that data is all available if, for instance, like if you had some kind of tracking data that only the Big Ten had and you want to really know, you know, who runs the most precise routes in the Big Ten and or something like air yards, which is which is something that Josh Hernsmeyer has been doing in the NFL. Maybe you do like a very Big Ten specific thing just because you have the data there. Um, so I, I think it depends on both the problem that you want to answer and then what data you have access to. So I'm sure a million people have asked you for advice, and I'm I'm sure you've probably had advice in your time. What's the best advice you've ever received, or that you give to anyone who sort of sends you an email or comes up to you at the MIT conference? Yeah, I mean it's usually you know show up at the MIT conference. Um, I I'm you know in our digital age we interact so much online, and you know I'm I'm on Twitter a lot, and and uh, I think that face-to-face interaction is really undervalued and if you can have face-to-face interaction that's that's a really good thing like if you can meet someone if you can meet someone that's really important that and can potentially give you a job like you should meet them face-to-face not just talk to them on the phone or although talking to them on the phone is certainly better than um than doing something by email so uh you know, I mean, that's why these conferences make a lot of money. Uh, it's because the the face to face interaction is is still really important. And I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe another thing I would say is, you know, find people that you share values with. Uh, my academic career ended because I didn't share the kind of the same values with with my mentors there, and and we kind of diverged that way. Um, not everyone is going to want have the same goals and have the same values and want to do the same things. You know. If and and it's kind of different whether whether you want to work for a team or whether you want to be in the betting world. You know how much do you value money? I, I think it's pretty important to be around people that have the same values as you. So I, I think that's outside of sports analytics, just a life advice thing I would give to young people. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. So I, I must admit I've stolen this from certainly your podcast and a few others that I listen to in terms of quick hits at the end and some other things that aren't necessarily related to what we're talking about, and I'll get to that in a sec, but I'm going to ask you a couple of things. First thought in your mind or first feeling, just just throw it out there. So the first one is, what's the first book that a, a sports better or a, an analytics person in this space should pick up? <laughs> I, I, the first thing that came to my mind was actually my book on how to win your March Madness pool. So that's a little <laughs> bit selfish. Um, there's a lot of other Good things out there. I, come on, sorry, Moneyball. Yeah, go read Moneyball. Uh, hidden, hidden, and Moneyball is not an analytics book. It's it's a lot of a hidden value book and how Billy Bean is a con artist. Uh, so so a very interesting read there. 
NFL or college, run or pass on first down? Pass. Always, especially against the eight-man box. Michigan football, what's the trajectory? Um, I think the trajectory is is rising. I think Shea Patterson is a first-round NFL draft pick in 2019. Uh, still a huge amount of questions on that offensive line. I think that, you know, as we've known since the preseason, that's going to limit them. But you know, I mean, I I think they're gonna. I think at the end, when the dust clears at the end of the season, they're gonna be a top ten team. I don't think that means they beat Ohio State, but uh, it could be a pretty good season. So you can take. I'm not gonna try and say his name, but the Alabama quarterback Tua Tagovailoa. Yeah, Tua for the yep. Heisman, or you can have the field. Who are you taking? Oh, always the field. I think, especially this early in the season. Um, yeah, that's my instant reaction. I. I I guess it just goes back to even Tiger Woods at his peak. I think you would always take the field over Tiger. Um, I don't really have analytics to back that up, but that that's my gut, and it's just because there's so many other people and there's so much randomness. Um, oh, and plus two has got – I mean, Jalen Hurts behind him too, right? Yep. So, I mean, that's going to lessen his stats. And so, yeah, I would take the field. So let's assume that Oklahoma make the playoff. Who's going to miss from Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, or Ohio State? Uh, I'm going to say Ohio State just because of the schedule. Uh, Penn State looks pretty good. I think Michigan could beat them. Uh, there's just a lot of roadblocks there. I would not take Clemson. Their schedule is very easy. I think before the season I had them at like 70-ish percent to make the playoff, especially if Miami – I mean Miami's probably going to be their opponent – in the ACC championship game, uh, Florida State obviously looks terrible, and that looked like the second hardest game on their schedule. So, uh, yeah, Ohio State to not make it, Clemson as probably the most sure bet. Both of those because of schedule. So this is just blatant theft, but I've always wondered what you would say to these two. And the first one is culinary experience. What's your favorite? <laughs> uh, thank you so much for asking that. I, I love talking <laughs> about that. Um, I live in Ann Arbor, and uh, the best most recent one was a place called apparatus room in detroit so the chef is a two-star michelin chef from chicago uh high expectations and we went there and it exceeded those expectations which is always very pleasant uh i had like a, a pork belly thing which was the best thing i've ever eaten and 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 that, i mean like unequivocally the best thing i've ever eaten um it was just really good with pork but then like there was there's a lot of good like uh like an acidic salad on top of it but also some kind of uh like fruit rinds on top of that that added a little bitterness to it just just excellent if you ever get to uh if you ever get to detroit so let's assume that we got you a table for four there tomorrow night for dinner dead or alive as the as Ed Fang says on his podcast, dinner for four. <laughs> who who you who are you inviting? Uh, all right. So I for, for one for sure, Ron Chernow. He is an author historian. He wrote Hamilton, that became the Broadway hit musical. Um, he recently wrote a book on Ulysses S. Grant, and uh, I'm just amazed the way he crafts stories out of nonfiction. Um, he really gets into the the emotions of people. Like like you feel like you know these people after you've read the book. Um, I've read Hamilton and, and Grant. I highly recommend both of them. And even as like a writer, like I feel like he's getting better. Like I feel like Grant was an even better book than Hamilton. And Hamilton was amazing. So uh, I would definitely invite him. So the person I would have invited before that would be Lin-Manuel Miranda. 
Uh, he wrote Hamilton the musical. And uh, I'm always interested in people's process and their creative process. And my family was completely obsessed with uh, the musical in, in uh, I think, last year, so 2017. So we went and saw it. Uh, I read the book. And there's a lot of just interesting things uh, of how he translated the book to the musical. Um, so everything he captured the essence of the characters almost exactly, which is great, which is what you want to do. A lot of things in the music are also complete falsehoods. And I just want to ask him, you know, like, did you mean to do that? Were you just rushed to finish the musical? Um, just just lots of questions there. And and then uh, I, I guess one more for creative process. Uh, I'd invite Stan Lee. So he's the kind of creative genius behind Marvel. And our the family 2018 obsession has been uh, the Marvel movies. And uh, we, we made our way. We had seen zero uh, coming into this year and then we saw black panther and infinity war and then over the summer backed our way through all all 20 of the movies and i really feel like it's the gold standard in, in storytelling uh the way they make the par- characters the superheroes compelling uh real people with real problems and uh i had a i had a fun little exercise ranking all the movies and my top two are iron man and, and doctor strange and my wife always likes to say oh so you like the two most that had the arrogant men that had downfalls <laughs> and i was like yeah that's that's exactly right honey that's awesome if anyone's wondering what's going on here it's if you've listened to ed's podcast which i'm sure a lot of people have uh, at the end he always asks his guests these types of questions so one more Ed. i, I, I appreciate I, that jake uh i i just want to say like i stole all those from tim ferris i think i was <laughs> when i was starting my podcast i listened to a bunch of his and that's certainly where i got the you know your favorite book one and I think a lot of the other ones and, and it evolved it, it's evolved over over the time too so I think I read somewhere you're a beer connoisseur do you have a favorite beer that you've had in the last few weeks or months that you can share as well yeah so I have a lot of favorite beers uh the midwest is a fantastic place for beer um we have a place here called Holmes which is my buddy's beer and I'm biased but it's fantastic but um recently a friend gave me a beer from Treehouse and the only reason I knew about Treehouse is because it always ends up in the top uh, of Untapped, which is a which is a beer rating thing. And it was the most transcendent beer I've ever had. It was amazing in terms of complexity. And uh, I'm an IPA guy, so I think it was called Sat. Is it hard to get? Yes, it's impossible to get. Like I think I think his friend had a wait in line, and it's like. I think it's a good 45 minute drive outside of Boston. So I mean, I might try to go when I'm when I'm in town, but it's like. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not gonna rent a car, so do I want to take that you know long of a a ride share out there and and stuff like that? But I mean, it was really it was really that good. So apologies to Jim Harbaugh for not making the the dinner reservation. But anyone who's listening who's interested in this, check out uh, Ed's site, thepowerrank.com, and the newsletter. You should sign up for that. Ed, what's the best way to get in contact if anyone wants to ask a couple of questions? Is Twitter the best way? Um, actually, probably the newsletter. So I I can miss a something in my in my timeline on Twitter. But uh, if you if you go to thepowerrank.com, sign up for the free newsletter. I, I send out uh, predictions that are usually saved for paying members of the site. And uh, if you if you sign up, you get an email. Just hit reply to any of those emails, and I usually I'm pretty good about getting to every request I get through email that way. So I think that's the best way. 
Awesome, Ed. Thank you very much for your time. I, I look forward to the uh, March Madness update when it comes through and, of course, college football and NFL. So uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you.